calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Nightmare Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. Nightmare Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams and the Story Podcast is produced by Skyboat Media in association with Jim Freund. Speaking of Skyboat Media and other projects by John Joseph Adams, Volume 3 of the Apocalypse Triptych is now available in audiobook version on audible.com. Edited by acclaimed anthologist John Joseph Adams and best-selling author Hugh Howey, the Apocalypse Triptych is a series of three anthologies of apocalyptic fiction. The End is Nigh focused on life before the apocalypse. The End is Now turned its attention to life during the apocalypse. And now, Volume 3, The End Has Come, focuses on life after the apocalypse. The first two volumes which I post-produced are available on audible.com. And now, Volume Number 3, The End Has Come, produced by the great Skyboat Media, who produces the stories for both this podcast and the podcast of Nightmare Sister publication, Lightspeed Magazine. Look for it on audible.com. Now, let's get on with our next nightmare. Our next offering for the June issue is Snow by Dale Bailey. The story is narrated by John Nelson. Snow is copyright 2015 by Dale Bailey. Dale Bailey's new collection, The End of the End of Everything, Stories, came out in the spring. A novel, The Subterranean Season, will follow this fall. He has published three previous novels, The Fallen, House of Bones, and Sleeping Policeman with Jack Slay Jr., and one previous collection of short fiction, The Resurrection Man's Legacy and Other Stories. His work has been a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award and the Nebula Award, among others, and he won the International Horror Guild Award for his novelette, Death and Suffrage, later adapted for Showtime Television's Masters of Horror, he lives in North Carolina with his family. And so ends this week's intro. So without further ado, let's have a nightmare. Snow by Dale Bailey. 
They took shelter outside a boulder in a cookie-cutter subdivision that had seen better days. Five or six floor plans, Dave Kieran's figured. Brick facades and tan siding, crumbling streets and blank cul-de-sacs. No place you'd want to live. By then, Felicia had passed out from the pain, and the snow beyond the windshield of Lanyon's black Yukon had thickened into an impenetrable white blur. It had been a spectacular run of bad luck, starting with the first news of the virus via the satellite radio in the Yukon. Three days of disease vectors and infection rates, symptoms, and speculation. Calm voices gave way to anxious ones. Anxious ones succumbed to panic. The last they heard was the sound of a commentator retching. Then, flat silence. Nothing at all the length of the band. NPR, CNN, the outlaw country station. And suddenly, no one was anxious to go home. None of them. Not Kieran's and Felicia, not Lanyon or his new girlfriend Natalie, lithe and blonde and empty-headed as the last player in his rotating cast of female companions. On the third day of the catastrophe, when it became clear that humanity just might be toast, they'd pow out around a fire between the tents, passing hand-to-hand -hand the last of the primo dope Lanyon had procured for the trip. Lanyon always insisted on the best, tents and sleeping bags that could weather a winter on the Ross ice shelf, a high-end water filtration system, a portable gas stove with more bells and whistles than the full-size one Kieran's and Felicia used at home, even a Benelli R1 semi-automatic hunting rifle, just in case, Lanyon had said. The most remote location as well, somewhere 2,000 feet above Boulder, where the early November deciduous trees began to give way to pinyon pine and Rocky Mountain juniper. Zero cell phone reception, but by that time there was nobody left to call. Or anyway, none of them cared to make the descent and see. The broadcasts had started calling it the Red Death by then. Kieran's appreciated the illusion. Airborne, an incubation period of less than 24 hours, blood leaking from your eyes, your nostrils, your pores, and toward the end, 12 hours if you were lucky, another 24 if you weren't, gushing from your mouth with every cough. No thank yous all around. Safe enough at 7,500 feet, at least for the time being. The time being, Lanyon insisted, lasting at least through the winter and maybe longer. We have maybe two weeks' worth of food, Kieran's protested. We'll scout out a cabin and hunker down for the duration, Lanyon said. If we have to, we'll hunt. There was that, at least. Lanyon was a master with the Benelli. They wouldn't starve, and Kieran's didn't have any more desire to contract the Red Death than the rest of them. All had been going according to plan. Inside a week, they'd located a summer cabin complete with a larder of canned goods, and it started gathering wood for the stove. Then Felicia had fallen. A single bad step on a bed of loose scree, and that had been it for the plan. 
when Kieran scuttered jeans away, he saw that the leg had broken at the shin. Yellow bone jutted through the flesh. Blood was everywhere. Felicia screamed when Lanyon set the bone, yanking it back into true, or something close to true, splinting it with a couple of backpack poles and binding the entire bloody mess with a bandage they found in a first aid kit under the sink. The bandage had soaked through almost immediately. Kieran's holding her hand thought for the first time in half a dozen years of their wedding. The way she had looked in her dress and the way he'd felt inside, like the luckiest man on the planet. Luck. It had all turned sour on them. I'm taking her down, first thing in the morning, he told Lanyon. What for? You heard the radio. We're on our own now. You want to die too? Natalie asked. I don't want her to die, Kieran said. That was the point. Without help, she was doomed. Anybody could see that. There wasn't a hell of a lot any of them could do on their own. A venture capitalist and a college English professor and something else. A Broncos cheerleader, maybe? Who knew what Natalie did? Even if it's as bad as we think it is down there, he added, we can still find a pharmacy, antibiotics, whatever. You think there's any chance her leg isn't going to get infected? Grim-faced, Lanyon had turned away. I think it's a bad idea. You have a better one? How are you going to get down, Dave? You planning to use the Yukon? Kieran's laughed in disbelief. I can't believe you'd even say that. What? Lanyon said, as if he didn't know. You were the best man at my wedding. Hell, you introduced me to Felicia. The rules have changed, Natalie had said. We have to think of ourselves now. Fuck you, Natalie, Kieran said. And that had been the end of the conversation. He was wakeful most of the night that followed. Felicia was feverish. Am I going to die, Dave? She'd asked in one of her lucid moments. Of course not, he'd responded, the lie cleaving his heart. Lanyon woke him at dawn. They stood shivering on the porch of the cabin and watched clouds mass among the peaks. The temperature had plunged overnight. The air smelled like snow. You win, Lanyon said. We'll go down to Boulder. The snow caught them when they were winding down the rutted track from the cabin. Big, lazy flakes sifting through the barren trees to deliquesce on the Yukon's acres of windshield. Nothing to worry about, Kieran's thought in the back seat, cradling Felicia's head in his lap. But the temperature, visible in digital blue on the dash, continued to plummet. Twenty-five, fifteen, ten. By the time they hit paved road a good hour and a half from the cabin, and itself a narrow, serpentine stretch of crumbling asphalt, the snow had gotten serious. The wipers carved slanting parabolas in the snow. Beyond the windows, the world had receded into a white haze. Lanyon hunched closer to the wheel. They crept along, pausing now and again to inch around an abandoned vehicle. 
We should have stayed where we were, Natalie said. And the silence that followed seemed like assent. But it was too late to turn back now. Finally, the road widened into a four-lane highway, clogged with vehicles. They plowed onward anyway, weaving drunkenly among the cars. By the time they reached the outskirts of Boulder, the headlight stabbed maybe fifteen feet into the swirling snow. I can't see a thing, Lanyon said. They turned aside into surface streets, finding their way at last into the decaying subdivision. They picked a house at random, a rancher with a brick facade and an empty cul-de-sac. The conventions of civilization held. Lanyon and Kieran scouted it out, while the women waited in the Yukon. They knocked, shouting, but no one came. Finally, they tested the door. It had been left unlocked. The owners had departed in a hurry, Kieran's figured, fleeing the contagion. He wondered if they'd passed them dead somewhere on the highway, or if they'd made it into the higher altitudes in time. The house itself was empty. Maybe they'd gotten lucky. Maybe the frigid air would kill the virus before it could kill them. Maybe, Kieran's thought. Maybe. They settled Felicia on the sectional sofa in the great room before the unblinking eye of the oversized flat screen. Afterward, they searched the place more thoroughly, dosing Felicia with the amoxicillin and oxycodone they found in the medicine cabinet. Then the food in the pantry, tools neatly racked in the empty garage, a loaded pistol and a bedside table. Natalie tucked it in the belt of her jeans. Kieran's flipped light switches, adjusted the thermostat, flicked on the television. Nothing. How quickly it all fell apart. They hunched around a portable radio instead. White noise all across the dial. Welcome to the end of the world, it said. Not with a bang, but a whimper. The snow kept coming. Gusts of it, obscuring everything a dozen feet beyond the windows, then unveiling it in quick flashes. The blurred limb of a naked tree, the shadow of the Yukon at the curb. Kieran's stood at the window as night fell, wondering what he'd expected to find. A hospital? A doctor? The hospitals must have been overwhelmed from the start. The doctors first to go. The street lights snapped alight, solar-charged batteries, the death throes of the world he'd grown up in. They illuminated clouds of bellowing white that in other circumstances Kieran's would have found beautiful. Cold groped at the window. He turned away. Lanyon and Natalie had scrounged a handful of tea-light candles. By their flickering luminescence, the great room took on a cathedral air. Darkness encroached from the corners and gathered in shrouds at the ceiling. They ate pork and beans warmed over the camp stove, spread their sleeping bags on the carpet, and talked. 
The same goddamn conversation they'd had for days now. Surely we're not the only ones. And how many? And where? And what if? We're probably already dying, Natalie said, turning a baleful eye on Kieran's. Well, we're down here now, she said. What's your plan, Einstein? I don't have a plan. I didn't figure on the snow. You didn't figure on a lot of things. Cut it out, Lanyon said. We didn't have to do this, Cliff, Natalie said. What'd you expect me to do? I've known Felicia for years. I've known Dave longer. It's not like we had access to weather reports. No, Kieran's thought. That was another thing gone with the old world. Just like that, everything evaporated. By then, the cold had become black, physical. Kieran's got to his feet. He tucked Felicia's sleeping bag into the crevices of the sofa. She moaned. Her eyes fluttered. She reached for his hand. Kieran's shook two oxycodone out of the bottle. These'll help you sleep. Will you stay with me, Dave? All the way to the end, he thought. And he knew then that at some level, if only half-consciously, he had accepted what he'd known in his heart back at the cabin. She was gone. She'd been gone the moment she'd slipped on that bed of scree. And he'd laughed. He remembered that, too. Whoops, he'd said. And she'd said, I'm hurt, Dave. Her voice, plaintive, frightened, tight with agony. He'd never heard her use that voice in 17 years of marriage. And he knew then that she was beyond help. There was no help to be had. What had Natalie said? The rules have changed. We have to watch out for ourselves now. Yet Lanyon had surrendered the Yukon, and they had knocked on the door before barging into this house, just as they had knocked on the door of the summer cabin in the mountains before that. How long, he wondered, before they reverted to savagery. Will you stay with me, Dave? she said. Of course. He slid into a sleeping bag. They held hands by candlelight until the oxycodone hit her and her fingers went limp. He tucked her arm under her sleeping bag. He could smell the wound, already suppurating with infection, and lay back. The last of the tea lights burned out. Kieran's glanced at the luminescent dial of his watch. 9.30. The streetlight's spectral blue glow suffused the air. He closed his eyes, but sleep eluded him. An endless loop unspooled against the dark screens of his eyelids. Felicia's expression as the earth slipped out from under her feet. His helpless whoop of laughter. I'm hurt, Dave. He opened his eyes. You awake, Cliff? He said. Yeah. You think Natalie's right? We're all going to wind up coughing up blood in 24 hours or so? I don't know. Maybe the snow, Kieran said. Maybe the cold has killed a virus. Maybe. They were silent. 
One way or the other, we'll find out, I guess, Lanyon said. Snow ticked at the windows like fingernails. Let me in. Let me in. About the Yukon, Kieran said. It doesn't matter, Dave. You'd have done the same for me. Would he? Kieran's wondered. He liked to think so. I'm sorry I was an asshole, Lanyon said. It doesn't matter. Felicia's going to be okay. Sure she is. I know. Kieran's gazed across the room at the shadowy mound of the other man in his sleeping bag. What do you figure happened? Hell, I don't know. You heard the radio as well as I did. Something got loose from a military lab. Terrorists. Maybe just a mutation. Ebola. Something like that. Another conversation they'd had a dozen times. It was like picking a scab. A long time passed. Kieran's didn't know how long it was. It doesn't matter, I guess, he said. A drift between sleep and waking. Not anymore, Lanyon said. And the words chased Kieran's down a dark hole into sleep. Lanyon woke him into that same unearthly blue light. And for a moment, Kieran's didn't know where he was. Only that strange undersea radiance, his sense of time and place out of joint, a chill undertow of anxiety. Then it all came flooding back. The plague, Felicia's fall, the blizzard. Lanyon's expression echoed his unease. Get up, he said. What's going on? Just get up. Kieran's followed him to the window. Natalie crouched there, gazing out into the sheets of billowing snow. She held a pistol in one hand. What is it? he whispered. There's something in the snow, she said. What? I heard it. It woke me up. You hear anything, Cliff? Lanyon shrugged. Wind tore at the house, rattling gutters. Kieran's peered into the snow, but if there was anything out there, he couldn't see it. He couldn't see anything but a world gone white. The street lamp loomed above them, a bulb of fuzzy blue light untethered from the earth. Heard what? he asked. I don't know. It woke me. Something in the snow. The wind, Kieran said. It sounded like it was alive. Listen to it blow out there. You could hear anything in that. The brain, it... He hesitated. What? Natalie said. All I'm saying is, it's easy enough to imagine something like that. Voices in the wind. Shapes in the snow. Natalie's breath fogged the window. I didn't imagine anything. Look, he said, it's late. We're all tired. You could have imagined something. That's all I'm saying. I said I didn't imagine it. And then, as though the very words had summoned it into being, a thin shriek carved the wind. Alien. 
predatory. Unearthly is the cry of a hunting raptor. The snow muffled it, made it hard to track how far away it was. But it was closer than Kieran's wanted it to be. It held for a moment, wavering, and dropped away. A heartbeat passed, then two, and then came an answering cry farther away. Kieran swallowed hard, put his back to the wall, and slid to the floor. He pulled his knees up, dropped his head between them. He could feel the cold radiating from the window, shivering erect the tiny hairs on his neck. He looked up, his breath unfurled in the gloom. They were both watching him, Lanyon and Natalie. It's the wind, he said, hating himself as he said it, hating this new weakness he had discovered in himself, this inability to face what in his heart he knew to be true. Came a third cry then, still farther away, Jesus, Lanyon said. They're surrounding us, Natalie said. There, Kieran said. There? Who the hell do you think could be out there in that? Natalie turned and met his gaze. I don't know, she said. They checked the house, throwing deadbolts, locking interior doors and windows. Kieran's didn't get the windows. You wanted to get inside bad enough, you just broke the glass. Yet there was something comforting in sliding the little tongue into its groove all the same. Symbolic barriers, like cavemen drawing circles of fire against the night. As for sleep, forget it. He leaned against the sofa, draped in his sleeping bag, Envying Felicia, the oblivion of the oxycodone, her skin was hot to the touch, greasy with perspiration. He could smell, or imagined he could smell, the putrescent wound, the inadequate dressing soaked with gore. Across the room sat Lanyon, the Benelli flat across his legs. At the window, her back propped against the wall, Natalie, cradling the pistol in her lap. Kieran's felt naked with just the hunting knife at his belt. The snow kept coming, slanting down past the street lamp, painting the room with that strange, swimming light. Lanyon's face looked blue and cold, like the face of a dead man. Natalie's too. And he didn't even want to think about Felicia, burning up under the covers, sweating out the fever of the infection. We should look at her leg, he said. And do what? Natalie responded. And what could he say to that? Because there was nothing to do. Kieran's knew that as well as anyone. Yet he felt compelled in his impotence to do something, anything, even if it was just stripping back the sleeping bag and staring at the wound, stinking and inflamed, imperfectly splinted, oozing blood and yellow pus. Just keep doling out those drugs, Lanyon said, 
and Kieran's knew he meant the oxycodone, not the amoxicillin, which couldn't touch an infection of this magnitude, however much he prayed. And he was not a praying man. He couldn't help recalling his mother, dying in agony from bone cancer. The narrow hospital room, stinking of antiseptic, with its single forlorn window. The doctor, a hulking Greek, quick to anger, who spoke in heavily accented English. We are into pain management now, he'd said. How much is left? Natalie said. And Kieran's realized that he'd been turning the prescription bottle in his hands. Ten, maybe fifteen pills? Not enough, she said. I don't think it's enough. And a bright fuse of hatred for her burned through him, for giving voice to thoughts he could barely acknowledge as his own. After that, silence. Kieran's eyes were grainy with exhaustion. Yet he could not sleep. None of them could sleep. Unspeaking, they listened for voices in the storm. At two, they came. One, two, three metallic screeches in the wind. Lanyon took one window, Natalie the other, lifting her pistol. Kieran stayed with Felicia. She was stirring now, coming out of her oxycodone haze. What is it? she said. Nothing. It's nothing. But it was something. There, Natalie said. But she needn't have said it at all. Even from his place by the sofa, Kieran saw it. A blue shadow darting past the window. A little more than a blur. Seven feet long or longer, horizontal to the earth, tail lashing, faster than anything that size had any right to be, faster than anything human. There and gone again, obscured by a veil of blowing snow. Kieran's own words mocked him. Imagination, shapes in the snow. He thought of that icy snow tapping like fingernails at the window. Let me in. Felicia said, Dave, what is it, Dave? It's nothing, he said. Silence prevailed, shifting veils of snow. What the hell was that thing, Lanyon said. And Natalie from her window Let's play a game. Nobody said a word. The game is called What If, she said. What are you talking about, Kieran said. What if you were an alien species? Oh, come on, Kieran said. But Lanyon was grim and silent. Way ahead of us technologically, capable of travel between stars. This is crazy, Dave, Felicia said. What is she talking about? Nothing. It's nothing. And what if you wanted to clear the planet for colonization? You read too much science fiction. Shut the hell up, Dave, Lanyon said. We're intelligent. They would try to... We're vermin, Natalie said. And what I would do, 
I would engineer some kind of virus and wipe out 99% of the vermin, like fumigating a fucking house. And then, Lanyon said, then I'd send in the ground troops to mop up. Kieran snorted. Dave, it's craziness, that's all, he said. He said, here, these'll help you sleep. Nothing, then. Nothing but wind and snow and the sound of silence in the room. After a time, they resumed their posts on the floor. Felicia, weeping, lapsed back into drugged sleep. We're going to have to get to the Yukon, Natalie said. We can't see a fucking thing out there, Kieran said. At first light, maybe the snow will stop by then. And if it doesn't, Lanyon said, we make a run for it. What about Felicia, Kieran said. What about her? Kieran's looked at his watch. It was almost three o'clock. He must have dozed, for he came awake abruptly, jarred from sleep by a distant thud. A dream, he thought, his pulse hammering. It must have been a dream. A nightmare inside of this nightmare of dark and endless snow, of a plague-ravished world, and Felicia dying in agony. But it was no dream. Lanyon and Natalie had heard it, too. They were already up, their weapons raised. And even as he stumbled to his feet, shedding like water the sleeping bag across his shoulders, it came again. A thump against the back of the house, muffled by snow in the intervening rooms. What is it? Felicia said, her voice drowsy with oxycodone. Nothing, he said. It, it was nothing. A branch must have fallen. That was no branch, Natalie said. Not unless it fell twice. And twice more after that, two quick blows and a third, and then silence. A submarine hush so deep and pervasive that Kieran's could hear the boom of his heart. Maybe a tree came down. You know better, Lanyon said. Dave, I'm scared, Felicia whispered. We're all scared, Natalie said. Felicia began softly to weep. Shut her the fuck up, Natalie said. Natalie, I said shut her up. It hurts, Felicia said. I'm afraid. Kieran's knelt by the sectional and kissed her chill lips. Her breath bloomed in the cold air, sweet with the stink of infection. And he didn't think he'd ever loved her more in his life than he did at that moment. There's nothing to be afraid of, he whispered, wiping away her tears with the ball of his thumb. It's just the wind. But even she was past believing him, for the wind had died. The snow fell soft and straight through the air. The street lamp was a blue halo against the infinite blackness of space. Natalie's game came back to Kieran's. What if? And a dark surf broke and receded across the shingles of his heart. Felicia took his hand and squeezed his fingers weakly. 
Just don't leave me here, she said. Don't leave me here to die. Never. The glitter of shattering glass splintered the air. Felicia screamed, a short, sharp bark of terror. Shut her up, Natalie snapped. And in the silence that followed, in the shifting purple shadow of the great room with its sectional sofa and the gray rectangle of the flat screen and their sleeping bags like the shucked skins of enormous snakes upon the floor, Kieran's heard someone, something. Let's play a game. The game is called What If? Test the privacy lock of the back bedroom. A slow turn to either side. Click, click. Silence. Felicia whimpered. Kieran's blew a cloud of vapor into the still air. He clutched Felicia's fingers. He remembered a time when they had made hasty love in the bathroom at a friend's cocktail party, half drunk, mad with passion for each other. The memory came to him with pristine clarity. He felt tears upon his cheeks, and still the silence held. Lanyon snapped off the safety of the Benelli. Natalie put her back to the foyer wall, reached out and flipped the deadbolt to the front door. She pushed it a few inches ajar. Snow dusted the threshold. The Yukon locked, she whispered. No. Once again, the thing tested the lock. Dave, don't leave me. Natalie... She froze him with a glance. Something else she had said came back to Kieran's. The rules have changed now. We have to look out for ourselves. God help him. He didn't want to die. He choked back a sob. They had wanted children. They had tried for them. In vitro, the whole nine yards. I won't leave you, he whispered. Then the privacy lock snapped, popping like a firecracker. The door banged back. Something came, hurtling down the hallway. Something big hunched over the floor, and God, God, shedding pieces of itself. One, two, three, as it burst into the room. Guns spat bright tongues of fire, a barrage of deafening explosions. The impact flung the thing backward. But the pieces, two or three foot lengths of leg-pumping fury, kept coming. Snapping the Benelli from target to target, Lanyon took two of them down. Natalie stopped the third one not three feet from Kieran's throat. It rolled on the floor, curving needle teeth snapping, leathery hide gleaming in the snow-blown light, and was still. Those alien cries echoed in the darkness. Time to go, Natalie said. Lanyon moved to the door. Felicia clutched at Kieran's hand, seizing him with a tensile strength he did not know she still possessed. The cocktail party flashed through his mind. They had wanted children. Felicia, Kieran said, help me. No time, Natalie said. And Lanyon, I'm sorry, Dave. The moment hung in equipoise. Kieran's wrenched his hand away. Time to go, Natalie said again. We can't wait. You have to decide. 
and regular as a metronome inside his head. The rules have changed. The rules have changed. The rules. The rules. Natalie ducked into the night. A moment later, Lanyon followed. Glass shattered at the back of the house. One window. Two windows. Three. Don't leave me, Dave, Felicia sobbed. Don't leave me. Outside, the Yukon roared to life. The rules have changed. We have to watch out for ourselves now. Dave, Felicia said, I'm scared. God help him. He didn't want to die. Shh, he said, brushing closed her eyelids with his fingers. Never. I'll never leave you. I love you. He bent to press his lips to hers. His fingers fumbled at his belt. They closed around the blade. A moment later, he was running for the Yukon. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the story. Please consider making a stop at our website at nightmare-magazine.com. If you'd like to help spread the word about the Nightmare Magazine podcast, find us on iTunes and leave a review or rating there. Nightmare Magazine is published by John Joseph Adams. If you haven't already subscribed, check out our many options at nightmare-magazine.com slash subscribe. The stories of this podcast are produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrators Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. You can check out Skyboat Media's website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production is in association with Jim Freund. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. There's other ways you can be notified of new Nightmare Magazine content. You can subscribe to our free monthly newsletter or RSS feed, follow us on Twitter, or like our fan page on Facebook. If you visit nightmare-magazine.com and click on this month's editorial, you'll find links to all of our social media pages. This podcast is copyright 2015 by Nightmare Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Sleep tight. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.